At this time, the children are dismissed for children's church. So if you're in that demographic up through grade four, you are allowed to, to leave, to depart, um, to go back and be with your teacher. The rest of us turn in your Bibles to John chapter 14. We are in John chapter 14. We'll be looking at John chapter 14, verses 7 through 14. 7 through 14. Now, as we think about John chapter 7, it's the immediate passage following uh, one of the I am statements of Jesus, where Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. We understand that. And, and really what Jesus is talking about there is he's talking about belonging, this idea of belonging to the Father. How do we get connected to? How do we restore the relationship with the Father? Because Jesus keeps saying over and over again to the disciples that I'm not going to be with you very much longer. I'm going away. And they're like, well, where are you going? We're going to follow you, Jesus. And he goes, where I'm going, you can't follow. You will follow me one day, but not yet. And so the, the thought of Jesus departing has brought about um, some, some, some anxiety. You know, anxiety within the disciples that they're worried about what's going on. And so if, if we think about last week, we think about the idea of belonging. Um, now we actually think about the idea of knowing. How do we get to know the Father? How has the Father been revealed through the Son? And so we're going to talk a little bit today about some, some theology as we look at the Old Testament. But what does it mean that, um, that Jesus is, is the Father? That Jesus is the perfect representation of the Father? I want you to think about this. Um, uh, when you have multiple kids, for example, um, these children may grow up in the same home with the same mom and dad, and you may you know, teach them the same way, but, they, but they're very different. It's astounding, actually, to be a father and to see how different your children are. I mean, even to the point where you might have identical twins, and even though they reflect each other in terms of image, they are very different people. And the mothers and fathers of identical twins will tell you that their personalities are very different. And so when we think about this, uh, even with, with Jesus, so how is Jesus the Father and the Father, you know, Jesus, how does that work itself out? That's what we're going to look at today. I think about this in, in my own kids, and I had a guy come up to me at church one time, and um, all my kids are gone today, so I can talk whatever I want to about them right now, uh, which is really nice and, you know... Um, but uh, one, our, our older two children have like dark hair, brown eyes, and our younger two children have blonde hair and blue eyes. And there was a point at which um, our youngest uh, son and uh, William, who's not here, he's, he's at Camp Barnabas, um, he, was, um, he came up and he had said something nice to this, this man in our church. And uh, he was looking at our kids and, you know, he came up to Katie and it said, he was talking about William and he was talking about Olivia and he's talking about our children in general. And he came up to, to Katie and he said, you know, I don't know, Katie. Took you four tries, but you finally bred the boomer out of them. You know, that's what she said, you know. Now, anyway, I mean, that's, that's what, you know, this guy Joe told us about it. And, you know, yeah, they're very different. They're very different. And yet what we find is that in the midst of this particular passage, we find the revelation of God the Father in Jesus Christ. The perfection of the, the image. The image, the Word, the Son of God. Those are three different ways that we actually think about Jesus those three ways, um, but let's read it. Let's read it uh, right now. John chapter 14, verses 7 through 14. If you had known me, you would have known my father also. From now on, you do know him 
and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. And Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. And we all say, The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord endures forever. So now we're talking about, you know, this idea of seeing Jesus, seeing him and knowing him. Now, in in this, I want you to think about this. This is, um, I'm going to read this small section, and it's going to kind of blow your mind for a second, okay? But here it is. By, this is by Herman Bovink in, in a book called The Wonderful Works of God. I've just been working my way through it. But this is what he says with regard to who Jesus is. Um, it, it says this, He is eternal as God himself, meaning he, meaning Jesus. He is eternal as God himself, having been with him already in the beginning. He is the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. He is omnipresent, so that though walking about on the face of the earth, he is simultaneously in the bosom of the Father in heaven. That just blew my mind right there, okay? And after his glorification, he remains with his church and fulfills all in all. He is unchangeable and faithful, is the same yesterday and today and forever. He is omniscient, so that he hears prayers. He is the one who knows all men's hearts. He is omnipotent, so that all things are subjected unto him, and all power is given to him in heaven and on earth, and is the chief of all kings. In the Old Testament, The name of Savior or Redeemer was given to God, but in the New Testament, the Son as well as the Father bears this name. Christ is the image of God, the brightness of God's glory, and the express image of his person. That's who Jesus is. Now, I want to explain that to you in this way. In the Old Testament, we, we read about this in Genesis chapter 3. In, in Genesis chapter 3, when sin entered the world, there was a broken relationship that occurred between God and man. There was a severing of the relationship and the bond that was between God and man. And what we find is that in the Old Testament, um, we, we see this, that God begins to reveal himself, but he's revealing himself and he's still hidden. You see, in Israel's history, God is revealed only in hiddenness. What is revealed is both the holy otherness of the God who is, who is a consuming fire and the gracious presence of God in the midst of his people dwelling among them. Now, let me give you an example. Let me give you several examples of that, about this. So in the Old Testament, the people of God are yearning to have a relationship with the Lord God of heaven. And God, as he calls out Abraham in Genesis 12, he says, I will make for you a great people. And he's beginning to reveal himself to his people. But, but he does so in a veiled, sort of shadowy-like way. He doesn't reveal all of his glory. But we see that there's this unfolding that occurs. Uh, let, let me give, again, a couple places. His glory. Now, when we think about the glory, glory is always meant to be something that we see. 
When we see glory, we see the glory of God. We see this in Exodus um, chapter 33. When, you know, Moses says to God, please show me your glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord, and I will be gracious to him, whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock and where my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand and you shall see my back, but my face you shall not be seen. So there's this aspect of Moses, a man who, who walked with God, a, a man who was you know, highly favored and yet God would not reveal himself to Moses. And yet Moses says, if I can only see you, If I can see you, then I know that our relationship will will be established. We see this in, you know, Exodus 16, verses 7 through 10, where in the morning, you know, it's um, talking about the elders um, of of all in, in the midst of the grumbling and complaining about not having meat to eat. It says this, and in the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord because he has heard your grumbling against the Lord. And so there's this idea that they look toward the wilderness and behold, the, the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud. And so in the, in the Old Testament, the glory of the Lord appears in a cloud, but he also appears by fire by night. You know, we see this in, in the idea of Mount Sinai in, in, in Exodus chapter 24, that the people of God were, and the elders were coming near God, and it, Moses went up on the mountain, and the cloud covered the mountain. The glory of the Lord dwelt on the Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it six days. And on the seventh day, he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. Now, the appearance of the glory of the Lord. Now, think about this. The appearance of the glory of the Lord, like a devouring fire on the top of a mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. I mean, I don't know about you guys, but I got a little bit worried when I started hearing sirens the other day, right? You start hearing sirens, and, and, and by the way, I know that you're from Kansas when you hear sirens and you run outside. <laughs> because the rest of us, we seek shelter when we hear sirens. Everybody from Kansas like, oh, where is that? Let's go find that. You know, everybody else who didn't grow up in Kansas and is actually scared of the finger of God, otherwise known as a tornado, actually seek shelter. A fiery mountain right now on Mount Sinai. That's who God is. And so the, he is not one that you can draw near to because there's a sense in which the fear of the Lord is overwhelming. He's not one that you can see his face. He is overwhelming. Now, another place that we see this is at the tabernacle. You know, after the tabernacle was built, you know, the, the cloud in, in Exodus chapter 40, after the tabernacle, the temporary dwelling place of God, then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle throughout all their journeys. When the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. Do you see this? Because the tabernacle was filled with the glory of God, Moses could not enter in. Like it was, he was incapable of becoming close to the Lord. That's how he was revealing himself to the people of God. In a similar way, in the temple. When the temple is finished, when Solomon builds the very first temple, and when all the priests and all the pomp and circumstances and the cymbals and the harps and the lyres and the you know, electric guitar and the drums over here and all the altar and 120 priests and all of these things, um, then the, the song was raised with trumpets and cymbals and other musical instruments and praise to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. The house, the house of the Lord was filled 
with a cloud so that the priest could not stand to minister before the cloud for the glory of the Lord filled the house. The priest could not stand to do their job because when the glory of the Lord in the Old Testament came too close, they would fall on their knees and depart from the glory. That's what we see in the Old Testament. Now, whether it's you know, at Mount Sinai or in the tabernacle or in the very first temple, or maybe it's in Isaiah where he sees a vision of God and the holy of holies and the glory of the God filled the throne room of God. And he said, like, I am a man of unclean lips. I cannot stand. So he falls on his face. Again, I've said this before. Some people will say, you know, you know when I get to heaven, I'm gonna ask God a few questions. I'm like, I don't know, man. When you get to heaven and God shows up, I think you're gonna fall on your knees. And he may ask you if you want to ask some questions, or you may be, be very, very happy to be in his presence and joyful to the point where you're like, this is great. Now, in a, in a similar way, um, the glory of the Lord in Exodus, or, I'm sorry, Ezekiel chapter 10, it talks about the departure of the glory of the Lord in, in the people of God. So in the people of God in the Old Testament, there's a departure. In Ezekiel chapter 10, because of their, their sinfulness, because of their transgressions of the law, because they have now you know, gone after other gods and done other things, in Ezekiel chapter 10 says, then the glory of the Lord went out from the threshold of the house and the cherubim lifted up their wings and mounted up from the earth before my eyes as they went out with the wheels beside them. And as they stood at the entrance of the east gate of the house of the Lord, and the glory of the God of Israel was over them, meaning that the glory of the Lord that filled the temple departed the temple and left Jerusalem. So now, if you're a person who's an Israelite, if you're a person of Judah, you're now seeing this Ezekiel, this prophet coming and saying, because that we are going to be sent into exile, the glory of the Lord is departing us. But there's still hope because throughout the Old Testament, there's also this idea of the return, the return of the glory of the Lord, right? The return. Now, in, in Isaiah chapter 35 says this, we've heard this, you know, the, um, you know, the wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocuses. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it. The majesty of Carmel and Sharon, they shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. There's a promise to the people in the Old Testament that they will see the glory and majesty of God. Also in, in Isaiah chapter 40, where it says, A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. The glory of the Lord shall be revealed. And the people of Israel are saying, yes, we long to see the glory of the Lord. Or even in Ezekiel, last reference, 43, it says, As the glory of the Lord entered the temple by the gate facing east, the Spirit lifted me up and brought me into the inner court. And behold, the glory of the Lord filled the temple. Now Ezekiel's talking about when God will fill the temple, when, when God will, will be um, filling um, in, in, the, in the future. So this, the glory of the Lord. Now, it's, it's interesting because when you love something, you yearn for nearness, for proximity. You see this, right? But in the Old Testament, there's sort of a God keeping his people at a distance. He's a, he's a, a fire at the top of a mountain. I mean, he's so glorified that people can't come near him at all. But if you're in relationship with someone, if you love someone, you long to be connected to them. 
We see that, right? Like, we, we, we see that. I mean, how many of you guys have seen those, those funny videos where uh, I saw one where a soldier had been deployed for a year, um, and he had dressed up as the umpire at his, at his son's baseball game? And that, you know, after, like, his son was, like, up at the plate, you know, he said, you know, like, strike one, strike two. And, you know, then, then you know, he revealed himself. He, he pulls off, you know, his, his clothing, or not his clothing, sorry, his, his, his mask and his, all the garb that umpires wear, you know, and, his dad, and he sees him and he just runs into his arms because that little boy had been apart from his father for a year. Or you think about this and, you know, again, in a military setting, you know, when, when ships come in, you know, uh, we were living very close to Norfolk, Virginia. Uh, in Norfolk, Virginia, when, when a carrier would come in, I mean, people would pretty much start counting the days going like, well, we're going to have a, a rash of babies in about nine and a half months. It's just kind of how it is, right? You know, the hospitals begin to brace for that in the midst of when a carrier group would actually come in to port because your know, wives uh, and husbands would be waiting for their loved ones and they were so excited to be near. There's a nearness there. You see, proxi- you know, love yearns for this. And so when, when Philip... When Philip says to to Jesus, he says, Lord, show me, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. He is expressing the longing of the heart of everyone in the Old Testament. He is actually expressing the heart of everyone who is on the planet today. Lord, if you could just show us who God is, if you could just show us the Father, then we'll be satisfied. Can you do that? And Jesus, now this is, this is interesting um, insofar as, um, as we think about this, these Greek words, because what we find is that when Philip says, Lord, show, the Greek word for show there means to demonstrate, to actually be active and demonstrate to us now that you are the Father or that the Father is around. And this is what Jesus says to him. Notice that he says, and it is enough for us, meaning the disciples. And Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen, now, when, when we see what Philip says, the idea of showing, it's, it's, a, it's a, this idea of a demonstration. Now, when Jesus uses this Greek word to be seen, he means to, to see with understanding, that there will be a perception There will be an apprehension of who Jesus is in all of his work and words and glory. And he says, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father, meaning demonstrate to us that you are the Father, demonstrate these things. Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. And so what um, he goes from, he goes from this idea of, I want to see a demonstration of the glory of God. And Jesus says, no, you don't need to see another demonstration of the glory of God, but rather you need to have an apprehension, a comprehension, an understanding of who I am and who I said that I am. Now, what we find here is that Jesus is um, the perfection of all that we see. You know, if, if um, again, to know God does not consist of knowing a great deal about him, but of this. Rather, that we have seen him in the person of Christ. 
that we have encountered him on our life's way, and that in the experience of our soul, we have come to know his virtues, his righteousness and holiness, his compassion and his grace. You see, in the midst of answering Philip, what he's saying is, like, I am the Father. If, if you are wondering who the Father is in terms of his holiness, look at my life. If you want to know, does God get angry? Look at what I get angry about. Every virtue I have is a, an exact representation of God the Father. If you know me, you know the Father. You see, what, what happened in the Old Testament in some ways, and even C.S. Lewis writes a book and titles it in this way, he calls it the great divorce. But that's what we see. We see this separation. You see, you mean, the idea of divorce is to take something that was meant to be together, cleave together, and ripping it apart. And what we see in the midst of Jesus is, is he's saying, I have come to reconcile that broken, tattered relationship. Like, yes, you were created by God for God, but because of sin, you are separated from him. And because of your sin, you are unholy and incapable of being joined back. But I will make a way. I will make a way for you to be reconciled to the Father. By the way, I am the Father. Now, he's, this is what's um, astounding for us is when Jesus says these things, notice what he, what he does. He goes, do you believe? He says, do you believe? And again, everything that, that, everything that is written in the Gospel of John is so that we might believe and that by believing we may have life in his name. And when he says life, he means abundant joy. He means purpose. He means a life that is overwhelmingly you know, glorious. Now, but he goes on to say, believe... Um, that I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. And so he, he, he says, believe me that I am in the Father and that the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. So he says, believe on account of the works themselves. Now, what are the works that we have seen within the Gospel of John? In chapter 2, he turns water into wine. He, he is, he, in chapter 4, he heals a, a sick boy. In chapter 5, he heals a paralyzed man. In chapter 6, he feeds the 5,000. In chapter 9, he heals the blind man. And in chapter 11, he raises Lazarus from the tomb. And he goes, all of these signs... Now, uh, other places might call them miracles, but in the Gospel of John, they call them signs, pointing to the fact that Jesus is who he said he was. And revealing, now, and this is, get this, he's revealing the way that you can be reconciled to the Father through Jesus, the Son. That's the glory of the Gospel. Again, Romans chapter 5, how are we described? Enemies of God. But in Galatians chapter 3, we are called the children of God. What's the difference? The difference is Jesus. Because if we trust and believe that Jesus is the only way and we trust and believe, then we are adopted into the family of God. Again, the term grace, unmerited favor, or I think Jerry Bridges coined it, you know, God's riches at Christ's expense. That's what we think about. Now, he says not only... You know, do you, but the Father who dwells in me and does his works. Believe in me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. So he says, I'm giving you the words, and, and believe my words, but also believe the works. 
But then he says something here that's remarkable in John chapter 14, verse 12. He says, truly, truly. Now again, I say that. When, when he says truly, truly, it happens 25 times in the Gospel of John. And when he says truly, truly, it means you need to perk up, listen up, because I'm about to lay some truth on you, okay? That's what he's saying. He says, truly, truly. He says, I say to you, and again, this is where he goes from word to works, you know, believing, showing the Father through the Son, through the words and the works of Christ. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. So I need to explain that, right? Because I don't know... um, I will not be able to turn any bit of that grape juice into wine later, okay? I don't think any of you can feed 5,000. I don't think any of you are raising Lazarus, right? So what does it mean that those who are a part of the family of God, who've been ushered into a relationship with the Father through Jesus the Son, will do greater works than what Jesus has done? How do we reconcile that, right? What does that mean for us? Does that mean miracles? Because, um, I mean, if, if, that's, if that's the indicator that you have to do greater works than Jesus to be a part of the family of God, I'm just here to tell you, we all lose. <laughs> like, none, I, I mean, I, none of you guys, you know, have done these. Me either, by the way. You know, I even look, I think about, you know, people who claim to do miraculous things. By the way, I don't, I don't believe in a faith healer until he reaches the age of like 200 years old. Once he reaches 200, I'll start paying attention, okay? But up until then, like, I'm, I'm not going to deal with that. So what does he mean that we'll do greater works? I think that there's a key for us to understand what he means when we look at Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10, verse 17. And now this is talking about when Jesus has sent out people in Luke chapter 10, two by two, to do works uh, within the people of God, among the people of God, right? So after the 72 return... Then the the 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. So so the people are are excited because they're casting out demons, healings are going on, and they're excited about these works. But notice what Jesus says and the value Jesus puts on their works uh, that they think are astounding. He says, and he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, and here's the key point, nevertheless, do not rejoice in this. Do not rejoice in the fact that all of these miracles, because I'm around, are taking place. Do not rejoice in this. Um, Do not rejoice in this that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. He goes, you guys can get excited about these miracles, but what's even greater, what's even more important, more valuable to me is that your names are written in the book of heaven, the book of life, that you trust and believe. And so I think as we take what Jesus values from Luke chapter 10, and as we think about what's going on in John chapter 14, verse 12, when he says greater works, I think what he's saying is that the works of the gospel will go forward out in greater power that the expansiveness of the gospel will will be removed from Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, but it will go to the uttermost parts of the world, and that the gospel proclamation will become greater. Let me give you an example. At the time of Jesus' death, there were probably roughly, give or take, 500 believers in Jesus, or say, right? But when the Holy Spirit came upon Peter at Pentecost, 
3,000 people were added to the church that day. From 500 to 3,000. In the course of just a generation or two, um, the gospel began to spread, and it began to spread outside of Judea, just, and it began to spread all the way to Rome. That within probably 100 years, 200 years, you had millions of people bending the name uh, or bending their knee at the name of Jesus Christ. So when I think Jesus is saying greater works, I think he's saying that the expansiveness, greater in terms of geography, greater in terms of more people are going to hear the name of Jesus and come to salvation, and that you will have the ability to continue to spread the gospel and spread the gospel and spread the gospel. And I think that that promise is even for us today. The promise and really the call of God in the life of the people of God is to bring the gospel message to those who don't know, to be broadcasting it, to be living it out, to be showing the glory in the same way that Jesus reveals the Father to us we are called to reveal Jesus to the world around us. When people see us, they should see Jesus. Now again, we're pretty imperfect, right? <laughs> I mean, we're pretty broken people. But that's the call of God, is to, to continue to, to point people, to be a signpost really for Jesus. When people see our lives and they say, and if there's anything in our lives that looks beautiful, if there's anything in our lives that looks noteworthy, we are meant to be a signpost that redirects the glory that is meant uh, by that person to us, and we redirect it to Jesus. That's the call of God in our lives, to reveal it to others. And that's what I think when he says, and greater works, greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Now, now next week, we talk about that in the midst of the Holy Spirit, the helper, the advocate who will come. But what this section of Scripture is doing in terms of revealing the Father to us, it's saying this. In, in, in the first part of John, when he's talking to um, the disciples, when he's leaving, he's saying, you know, here's, here's how you can belong to the Father. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. But now you can actually know the Father. You can not just belong, but now you can actually perceive and know him. I mean, that is a wonderful truth that we find. Now, it goes on to say this, and this is in verse 13. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. Does that mean that God, through Jesus, becomes like a genie that, and a lamp that we just kind of rub? We just kind of, or you know, he becomes like our Amazon Jesus click list. Lord, I really want this. Can you get it to me right now? I mean, not in 24 hours, but right now. Maybe I'll wait 24 hours, right? I don't think that's what it means. Jesus is not a vending machine. God is not a vending machine that we put something in and we get out. But what does it mean that we, when we pray in Jesus' name, if we ask anything in Jesus' name, it will be given to us? Um, now, I'm just going to tease you with that because it also reiterates this in John chapter 16. And so that's when we're going to talk about it. <laughs> we're going to talk about that in John chapter 16 in about two years. Um, <laughs> now, I'm going I'm to close with, with this quote in terms of knowing 
and having the Father revealed to us in Jesus. This is by Spurgeon. This is what he says about head knowledge and heart knowledge. He says, I consider a loss compared to the surpass, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, quoting Philippians 3.8. I want to know him. You see, again, in the Old Testament, there was the separation, but in Jesus, we now get to come close to the Father through Jesus the Son. I mean, think about this. We get to enter into the throne room of grace every day we pray. And our Father in heaven welcomes us into his throne room of grace to commune with him every day in prayer. And we get to know him in his word and in Jesus. He says this, Spurgeon says, saving knowledge of Christ will be a personal knowledge. I must know him experimentally in my own soul. Saving knowledge of Christ will be an intelligent knowledge. I must know him not as I imagine him to be, but as the word reveals him to be. I must know his nature, divine and human. I must know his offices, his attributes, and his works. I must meditate upon him until I am able to comprehend how wide, how long, how high, and how deep his love is. This saving knowledge of Christ will be an affectionate knowledge of him. Indeed, if I know him at all, I must love him. An ounce of heart knowledge is worth a ton of head learning. The saving knowledge of Christ will be satisfying knowledge. When I know my Savior, my mind and heart will be full to the brim. I shall feel that I have that which my spirit pants after. No one who comes to me will ever be hungry, and no one who believes in me will ever be thirsty again. That idea of knowing Christ and it being satisfying. The saving knowledge of Christ will be the most blessed knowledge. In fact, it will be so elevating that sometimes it will completely bear me up above all trials and doubts and sorrows. And it will, while I enjoy it, lift me above troubles, for it will fling, me, it will fling about me the blessedness of the ever-living Savior and gird me with the golden belt of his eternal joy. I think about that, that it, the knowledge, the, the revelation of the Father through Jesus the Son, the reconciliation that we have, it will be this satisfying, ever-expanding, blessed affection that we have because of all that Jesus has done for us. Now, when we think about what he has done for us, we think about this table in front of us. We think about this table that is set before us with this bread and with this juice, and what do they represent? They represent Jesus dying on the cross for our sins. It represents the substitutionary atonement, which allows us, once enemies of God, to be the loving children of the Father. You see this bread, when Jesus, the night when he was betrayed, took bread and when he broke it, he said, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Why does he say in remembrance of me? Because we need to be reminded that we are saved through Jesus. And this cup represents the new covenant. And he poured out the wine into, this, into the cup. And he said, this represents my blood shed for the forgiveness of sins. And as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Now, in the midst of Paul giving us the, the words of institution of the Lord's Supper, he's saying every time we take this, we remember that only in Christ are we saved. Only in Christ do we have purpose. Only in Christ do we find forgiveness and love. 
Apart from Christ, we are lost brothers and sisters. If you do not trust and believe in Jesus this day, then I would say, please do not partake of this. But rather, find an elder up front. We always have elders up front who want to pray with you. If you have a need, come find the elders. If you have a question about who Jesus is, how can Jesus and the Father be the same? How can Jesus and the Father um, be the complete mirror image? You know, come and ask those questions. If you trust and believe that Jesus is your Savior, then this table is for you. This table is not the table of Grace Presbyterian Church, but rather it is the table of the Lord. And he invites all those who trust and believe in him to come and receive. But if you don't believe, we even read it today. We read it in the midst of the Heidelberg Catechism. If you trust and believe, you know, if, if, if you've never received the supper, come talk to our elders. Say, I trust and believe. Help me to understand these things. Do that today. But for those of us who are coming, I pray that we would come joyful. We would come with a song in our heart. We would come knowing that we are a part of the family of God and that we belong and that we can know the Father because he has been revealed to us in the Son. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, I pray, Lord, that you would help us, that you would pour forth grace upon grace upon your people, and that we would know your love and your care for us. Father, I pray, Lord, that you would use these common elements. Father, they will always be bread, they will always be juice, but Father, I pray, Lord, that you would bless them in such a way that we trust and believe more and more upon Jesus. Father, as often as we do this, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes, and Father, I pray, Lord, that we would know that we are saved only in Christ, that there is one name under heaven whereby we must be saved that we would trust and believe more and more. And Father, I pray, Lord, that you would bolster our faith. Father, for those who are weary, where this week has been just overwhelming, Father, I pray, Lord, that they would know that they are loved and saved and redeemed. And I pray, Lord, that their faith would be renewed like the eagles. Father, would you help us? We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.